trying to spend a lot of time on like creative problem solving, um, like building character, giving kids like authentic experiences, not only in school, but outside in the world. And really just like creating a school that kids love. And I think that that's just such an important piece. It's not procedural or, you know, based on some tired dogma of the past. Like it's really just a forward thinking school that knows that children that are engaged in learning and are able to work collaboratively in teams and work for strategic purposes, like tend to be happiest. Hi guys, welcome back to Beyond High Street. David Schwab with you. Hope everyone's having a great day and a great week. Today we talked to Josh Don. Josh is the co-founder of a school in Los Angeles called Ad Astra. Ad Astra in Latin is to the stars. He co-founded the school five years ago with Elon Musk and the school is located on the SpaceX campus. 50 kids ages 8 to 14. What they're doing to disrupt the education education system is really mind-blowing. Focusing on problem solving, building character, forward thinking, and giving children a voice in the ability to reason. And in his words, it's magical to watch. We even take a 30,000 foot look at how he envisions changing the entire US education system and a new technology platform and idea and programming that they've created and will be rolling out shortly, hopefully to help millions of children now and in the future. Um, And the conversation started when he went to Oxford in high school coming out of Columbus and the Junior Scholars Program, six to eight weeks as a 16, 17 year old on campus to to learn about the future. And similar to many others that we have on the pod, the memory of certain professors on campus in Miami that helped guide them, maybe change a major or put them in the right direction that set them up for success. Really impressive for Josh, it's Peter Schuler um, and the switch and the shift from the business school to philosophy and American studies. Uh, one of the statements and phrases that he said that I wrote down and I will use now for myself personally and professionally that I really liked is words to live by, a sense of possibility. If you can just think about that and how it pertains to what you do every day, I think it's uplifting for all. I hope everyone enjoys the conversation with Josh. What he's built is really impressive uh, and hopefully helpful for students everywhere. Thanks. I grew up in like a, a household of Ohio State alums. My dad played baseball there. My mom I grew up in Pittsburgh, but then went to Ohio State, and they met at a golf outing uh, that my dad won. My mom was um, hmm. selling beverages on the course, and they like hit it off. So, like Ohio State was like you know very much part of my childhood. Going to every Michigan Ohio State game uh, at that time, ending in like tears and agony because we would we lose every year during the John Cooper era. But then for my, for me, like Miami was really just, you know, at the time it was like really Ohio State or Miami of the two state schools that seemed like the best options. And I spent my, uh, I guess after my junior year of high school, this like kind of nerdy program called Junior Scholars at Miami and took uh, two courses, a philosophy course and an American history course um, on campus for like six weeks. So I, I had credit for the school. And part of the bargain was like, if you have like a 3 or or higher, you'll get accepted automatically. Hmm. So I went into my senior year um, knowing that I was accepted. And I think sort of my ambition at the time was not to like apply widely elsewhere, knowing that I was already accepted. So I just, I think, kicked back my senior year. And then I sort of knew like I'd be starting in the fall of 2004 uh, in Oxford. Um, 
Yeah. And and why why junior scholars back then? Was that a already your mind almost the means to the end of that would get you into Miami or were you were you that kid in high school that uh either from studying or learning or um or you wanted to just get away from home for 6 weeks but kind of <laughs> why then? Cuz you're that's a that's yeah. a young age when there's a lot of kids that are either mowing lawns or lifeguarding or hitting the beach in the summer. Yeah, no, I think I just, I think I wanted to get out of some level of work. And I think, you know, I'm sure it was sold to me as, listen, like you can avoid the entire application process and all the anxiety that goes with it. If you just, you know, work really hard for it, maybe it was eight weeks, like six or eight weeks at Oxford. So um, I think like maybe like high school guidance counselor had brought it up when I was interested in the school. And then, you know, then you have to like select your courses. And then, you know, I took a 300 level philosophy class with uh, Peter M. Schuler, who became actually like one of my favorite professors on campus um, when I attended school there. But, you know, kind of a crazy philosophy class. And basically the first day he, he told us, like, basically just because it's your opinion, it doesn't matter. And, you know, it really like rubbed a lot of kids the wrong way. I think like probably four other kids and junior scholars like dropped the class immediately like <laughs> after the first day. So by the end, it was like three kids in there. But, um, you know, I think it was just one of those things. Like I felt like in high school, I never took it as seriously as I, as I needed to. I knew that I was, you know, likely to get into Miami uh, on my own, but would not hurt to, uh, to have spent some time, like taking some, some courses and having like a leg up plus with AP stuff and you could start, you know, as a freshman, but really as like a sophomore, if you did it thoughtfully. So, you know, it was more practical than anything. And probably at some level, like wanting to avoid, you know, working like long hours, you know, mowing lawns or painting mailboxes or whatever else we all do to make money at that age. Yep. And then yeah. you're you're on campus and you stay true to the philosophy professor and major, I think. And when you were, what, what were you like as a, a student? Was it more you were a book guy or you were more out socially or in clubs? What was college like? <laughs> yeah, well, I think, you know, one of the things that's that's sometimes difficult is like an Ohio kid in Miami. So I grew up in Columbus. It's that. Now you just know so many people at the school mm-hmm. and it's not like I have a, my youngest brother is a freshman, just finished his freshman year at UCLA, you know, and people are coming from all over California, but really all over the world to go to UCLA and in Miami, you know, especially 2004, 2008, you know, a lot of kids from Columbus, a lot of kids from Cincinnati, kids from Cleveland um, and surrounding areas. So I just knew so many people that in a lot of ways, it felt like an extension of high school that first year. And I roomed with my you know, inadvisable to do, but room with my best friend, mm. you know, and uh, had one of my other best friends just as it turned out down the hall. So I think for me, it was just like a lot of reading that I was doing that just like was not related to coursework. And I initially as, you know, I, I don't know, I can't really explain the decision now knowing who I am in a, in a more you know clear sense, but, you know, signed up to be a business major and really artfully and in a lot of ways and strategically avoided all of the prerequisite classes and those that I did take, I didn't fare particularly well. And it was pretty clear to me, I would say maybe like first semester, sophomore year that I just like detested the education that I was receiving, not because the professors weren't good or, or the kids weren't smart. It was just that I was not putting much of myself into what I was doing. So, um, so I party a lot, like, I mean, not necessarily, I didn't join a frat or anything like that, but certainly, you know, in our dorms and, you know, going to house parties and that sort of thing. Like, yeah, it became um, not a particularly academic exercise for me the first few years uh, until I kind of realized like what I wanted to do. And that's when I 
was at the urging of a, a girlfriend at the time, like Josh, like you were not clearly like not as happy as you need to be. Like you should go to this major fair and reconsider. So I met a Peter M. Schuler, as it turned out, at the major fair and uh, American history professor really liked. So I switched to American studies and uh, philosophy double major. And then I had a significantly better experience sort of from that point on, including going to Luxembourg my uh, for the first semester junior year. Which is pretty pretty great. Yeah, and everyone, I did not. I I joined the yeah. fraternity and lived the fraternity house scene all through school, and and was a Miami merger and, and married my girlfriend from school, and so we stayed in Oxford. But every single person I have talked to uh, that did Luxembourg or now even more recently, you can do a lot of other things besides Luxembourg. Never regret it, and feel like just the cultural experience and learning from others has been uh, a lifelong uh, of value. Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways, like the, I mean, the program was was really, um, really focused on like, you know, kids staying in Luxembourg, like going to Belgium on the weekends, like staying sort of local. And of course, like, for for many kids who are there for the first time, never been to Europe, they're not going to stay, they're not gonna go to Brussels for the weekend, like you're going to go to Salzburg, you're gonna go to Venice, like you're going to fly to London. So in a lot of ways, the, uh, the structure of the program was almost hostile to mm. travel, which, um, almost like made it a better experience in that, like you get out of class and you go class till like Friday, maybe until like, you know, one or two o'clock PM. And then you have to be back in class on Monday and all the classes, they take attendance. So you really had to be creative with flights and like when you would miss class and and everything else. So, I mean, it, it was now thinking back on it, the idea that people would get a Euro pass and then you get a class at 2 p.m. Friday, you're in Differdange, Luxembourg. It's not exactly Grand Central. You have to find a way to get to like Luxembourg City. From that point, you're taking a train, you know, all the way out to Berlin, like, and becoming, you know, getting back after a weekend of just, you know, total madness, you know, checking out the city and seeing all the sights and, you know, drinking all the beers and then, you know, getting back on a train and being ready for class on Monday. Like, it's pretty crazy. But, you know, I think under those conditions and missed trains and missed connections and all that, you know, you end up having like a really special time. So I like look back on those years really fondly. We live with like a baker. Uh, his, his uh, like moniker is the crazy baker. <laughs> and he, uh, I mean, there's no other way to say it. Like, he was an asshole. Like, you know, he was just, like, not a very nice person. And, um, you know, but but then again, like, the people that you lived with, you have a great time. You know, he's – they would call us boy collectively. So the three of us were living there. He, You know, three boys. And his wife would just call us boy, like boy one, boy two, boy three. <laughs> and uh, the first night, you know, they'd tell us about this – you know, the first night the host family was just supposed to give you these really nice like meals, you know, kind of like a welcome to the country meal. And we're hearing these stories of like, you know, of the past of kids who've had just like gourmet dining or, you know, the family really puts a lot of heart and soul into it. I think that was the experience for most. And we're like, Oh my gosh, this is a baker. Like this is going to be like the Lux, like really great. <laughs> I can't imagine what kind of cakes and things he's going to bake. And you know, we show up and it's uh, a dinner of uh, cold bread and butter. Oh my gosh. And, um, you know, and we had been, you know, of course, traveling all day and like, you know, it's hard to not sound entitled in this situation, but, um, you know, you go down to the bakery, you see the magnificent cakes this guy was capable of producing. And then for him, it was, I think, an economic decision to host us and didn't treat it anything more than that. So, um, a lot of, a lot of good, a lot of good, good, uh, members there and certainly some fights with the local gang that was not happy with us being there and some other things like that, but. Yeah, very memorable, I'd say. Yeah, and, and so what? What was it 
that either part of that experience or American studies and philosophy, where was the the light bulb that said, you know what, I'm going to go teach um, uh, or help uh, the future youth of this country? Where is there a moment when something clicked there? Yeah, you know, I think so. You know, 2008, when I was graduating, you know, the economy was really starting to show signs of recession. And, you know, at the time, like law school, was a diminishing prospect, at least in my mind, and, and I think a really wise one to avoid, especially given, you know, where I would have been financially in that situation, probably paying, you know, at 30 plus thousand dollars a year to get, you know, a lot of it from like a pretty average institution, all things considered. So um, this like idea of Teach for America, like there's a lot of recruiting going on at campus at the time. And, and part of the allure was that it was really competitive. So I worked at the uh, Art and Architecture Library on Sundays, and I just remember sitting there and looking at the application and just being like, okay, like I got to come up with, you know, something really compelling here because I know that the first round of Miami applicants, not a single person was accepted. Mm. Um, and part of that was, you know, the interview was off campus and it was at UC and it was like pouring down rain and people had art time parking and were late and frazzled and all that. So I was in the second round and just sort of knew I needed to come up with something special. So you know, I, in the final interview, I borrowed my friend's suit, which was ill-fitting. And, you know, I'd, I'd been up like all night writing my like lesson plan. You get like a five minute like demo lesson. And I just remember, you know, walking to the bathroom and just basically giving myself a pep talk. Like, you've got to just, you know, you got to just be great right here. You've got to make them believe, you know, that you really want it. And I, and I think at that point, like once you're accepted and then you kind of realize like what, you know, what it entails, you're just sort of, you're just seduced by like all of the dysfunction that is, is in our education system. And at the time, like, you'd know so little and you, you know, you tell people you're accepted to teach America. I was doing it in Las Vegas, which sounded really cool. And obviously I, you know, loved spending those last months of school, knowing what I was doing the next year and knowing that I was like moving across the country and all, but I didn't really know how much I would love education and be totally frustrated all the time with it as well until I taught sort of that first day. And that's when, you know, you're in front of 33 kids and you've got six hours to fill. And, you know, the, the normal playbook is just not going to be good enough. So, um, so that, yeah, it became, it became something that I was really proud to be accepted into. And then once it's just you in front of the kids, like it's just sort of a moral imperative to just figure stuff out. Yeah, I, one of the first line you said in that whole thing to me was really interesting. Of the allure of the competition, uh, it almost yeah. sounded like there was something in there that um, fired you up, or that forced you—not forced you, but um, that was part of the excitement for you and the challenge for you that you were in an environment that was going to be competitive to get something and maybe part of your DNA of how you think personally and maybe also how you teach and educate now too. Yeah, no, I think, I think that that's, that's totally true. And I think, you know, at Miami you have, you know, I mean, it's, it's a pretty affluent student body, all things considered, I mean, for the most part. And I, I think that a lot of kids go into school knowing that they are on like the med school track or the dental school track, or, you know, they're, they want to do finance. Like, you know, they have, a really clear idea, at least in theory of like what they want to do. And they're like sort of executing that game plan. And for me, um, 
I have like a competitive streak in that I guess I have a bit of a killer instinct when it comes to like something that I think I'm good at and, and I want it to always be better. So sense of possibility has always been one of my, my strong suits. And I felt like, you know, I was never going to job at Goldman Sachs. Like I wasn't, you know, certainly going to medical school. I mean, even law school. I mean, I'm not talking about Harvard law here. Like we were talking about something much less prestigious and, and also, you know, a lot, you know, really expensive. So I think the idea that like, wow, like in a lot of ways, taking the the really great experience I had in my, in my last two years where I was doing really well and feeling great about what I was learning to be able to, in some ways, like wipe the slate clean and like, you know, to be accepted something like Teach for America where people who had worked into, in honesty, far harder than I did during college and, you know, probably in a lot of ways took it more seriously. It felt like, I, and I felt like a redeeming thing in some ways to me, like, wow, like, I think I would be good at this. And I think if I can you know, interview well and, and make the case that, I would be one of the best people to do this, that I might be sort of on the right track uh, in a way that I wasn't necessarily um, in, in other ways. I mean, there's not like a clear path from philosophy major to something else, nor, you know, American history major. So, um, so yeah, I think that's, that's really true about my, my, who I am. And, and the, that part of the, who you are, your DNA and the sense of possibility, uh, to to life now at at Astra the school talk about that a little bit about the students the philosophy kind of why it was founded and and the direction of what you're building yeah so I mean I spent four years in Las Vegas doing Teach for America first three years teaching fifth grade like you know my first class had something like thirty three students uh, and and by the end of the year I had thirty three students but about nineteen of those kids were new students or had come over the course of the year. Hmm. So really transient time to be in Las Vegas, especially with the downturn and uh, like last chance saloon for a lot of families. And I think, you know, it's just I, I'd done a little bit of work in college uh, and over the Rhine and, and in Hamilton, uh, as well as like some work with the local food movement in Butler County. So I, I had some familiarity with some of the sort of the larger trends that were going on, but they all sort of merged in Las Vegas at that time. And you just had a lot of families that um you know, wanting the best for their children were absolutely like attentive to the problems that, that they were facing. But, you know, economically and financially, they just could not, you know, could not find stability in terms of a living situation. So, um, so I spent, you know, three years in fifth grade, my fourth year, I taught the gifted program at my placement school and two others. And then uh, the girl I had met in Teach for America, actually, we started dating around that time. And it was quite clear that she was not moving to Las Vegas. So, <laughs> I I was extraordinarily fearful of moving to Los Angeles. I mean, I grew up in Columbus. You know, the idea of moving to L.A. when you grow up, I guess, at least for where I grew up, it felt like more exotic in some ways than moving to Casablanca or somewhere like that. Like, it just felt like a place that culturally is at odds with how I was raised. And, like, of course, the traffic, and I talked myself into the smog. And <laughs> I, was, I was just downright terrified of the idea of moving to L.A. So, uh I ended up interviewing um, at a school called Merman School for highly gifted children on Mulholland Drive. It's like a really fancy school, like a lot of celebrities send their kids there. And it has this, you know, really sexy name, like Merman School for highly gifted children. So I ended up getting a job there and I spent two years there and I met Elon um, my second year and we had a couple conversations and really at the end it was, you know, what do you think about creating something that's better than the school? And of course, I said yes. And what has become of that initial conversation is a school of about 50 kids. It's located on SpaceX's campus. 
and uh, between the ages of eight and 14 and trying to spend a lot of time on like creative problem solving, um, like building character, giving kids like authentic experiences, not only in school, but outside in the world and really just like creating a school that kids love. And I think that that's just such an important piece. It's not procedural or, you know, based on some tired dogma of the past. Like it's really just a forward thinking school that knows that children that are engaged in learning and are able to work collaboratively in teams and work for strategic purposes, like tend to be happiest. So we um, have been very fortunate to have this opportunity. And now looking back, I mean, this is our fifth year. It seems kind of wild to think about, you know, from Teach for America all the way to this point here in 10 years. So the the easy question and then the harder question. The easier question is, give an example of maybe a, a problem solving something that an eight-year-old uh, you're challenging them with. I've got an eight-year-old, eight, eleven, and fifteen-year-old, uh-huh. um, and, and they're, you know, in a public school in Arlington, Virginia, and it's a great public school. But that's it's book learning, and you're learning about American history or state history, and you're going through your, your math and your your spelling and your grammar. So something that's that is different from what that is from a real-world practical what you, an eight-year-old may be going through for you. Sure. So, I mean, I think that the, you know, we really start from first principles, like what is sort of the purpose of school? And I feel like, at least from my experience, the things I remember from school tend to be, uh, tend to be like the, you know, the institutional events that the school would put on, the social things that happen, you know, the extracurricular stuff at sports and all that. And really, it's quite rare that I remember what actually took place in the classrooms. I mean, where most of the time is really spent. So if you take an example of like, let's say that, give you a catalog of like 60 different works of, of art and artifacts over time, you know, from all over the world. And each of those different works has a unique demand from 10 different cities around the world. So let's say like LA, Sao Paulo, um, Mexico City, London, you know, Lagos, Nigeria, etc. So you have 10 different cities, you got 60 different works of art, you know what the market is for each of those different cities. The idea would be that four different teams that are competing to bid on these different works of art in live and silent auctions. And you're trying to put together a cohesive collection that you could take on the road and make the most profit, bring the most attendance in, and ultimately put together sort of the best marketing plan uh, and exhibition humanly possible. So, like, this is a project I designed called LAMA, which is for Los Angeles Museum of Art. And really the idea is that kids, not only are you, like, learning about the different works of art, you're dealing with the ethical issues that are, like, that are involved as well. I mean, Caravaggio murdered someone. Like, are you comfortable having his work as part of your exhibition. What about like Queen Nefertiti statue? Like it, the Germans stole it from the Egyptians and it's been at the Noyes Museum ever since. Like, are you comfortable renting that piece of art and taking it on exhibition knowing that there, you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a huge dispute over its ownership. So um, having kids, you know, at, at the age of eight and older, go through the simulation in teams, working collaboratively, having to figure out what their plan is. Like maybe you, you know, really want Starry Night. You've done the math. You figure that, you know, over these, let's say, you know, we do like 10 years of, of the art exhibition. You spend a year in each of the 10, you know, each of the cities. What cities you're going to go to? Where can you make the most money? If this team does that, how does that affect us? What if you lose Starry Night in the auction? Like what's your sort of backup plan? So having to manage all those sort of different pieces of the project, uh, it's just quite a magical, like what you get from the kids. And, you know, you have negotiations going on at all hours of night. You've got kids like lunch conversations are about like who did what and how much it went for. You make it all publicly available. So kids are always looking at spreadsheets and figuring out the financials and are playing not only sort of their hand, but everyone else's hand as well. Um, 
it's just like you know that's an example of a project that is not only memorable but but one that that brings out sort of the best of what we want kids to be doing in school yeah it's almost like the entrepreneurship classes that one would take in a in a traditional i guess setting where it bring you uh, from what you described you you learn history you 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 may learn grammar you're learning negotiations and math you're learning geography you're just not learning them you know individually or linearly you're learning them as part of a group project Right. And I think that like, you know, in the, I think group project, I think project and group project together are really poorly done in most schools. And I think, you know, the most enlightening thing for me is working in like a really great team, you know, to be able to lead an exceptional team of educators here is, is one of the best things that I've experienced in my life. And I, and to give kids that experience at an age where they're, you know, like working in a high functioning team and with high expectations with a strategic element, like, there's there's nothing quite like it and and one of the the amazing things um that i really love to do is when i have people visit the school have them come during this class that's called synthesis so we have two classes um at the school that all kids take that are truly multidisciplinary and that there's no specific content that is required to be covered it's just it's really just based on problem solving so whatever problem seems most compelling that's the problem that kids are working on for that week or that those set of weeks so to have people visit the school and I can talk to, to you and share with you sort of like the idea of the project and all around you, kids are buzzing back and forth, going from room to room, negotiating, coming up with deals and plans, um, coming up with all sorts of contingencies. It's it's pretty magical to watch. And, and that's, I think, the true role of the 21st century educators, being able to walk out of a room and have the kids, you know, managing their own learning and, and moving in the direction that give that experience both, you know, a meaning and, uh, and also something that, you, that will continue to draw on for sort of the rest of your, rest of your educational career and hopefully your life. And you're looking back on that moment where you, you know, lost Mona Lisa and that devastating like last minute silent auction, or, you know, you put together the most amazing marketing plan. Then you get real feedback from people in the field who are telling you, you know, listen, like this is really well done, but like, you know, did you consider this sort of thing? So kind of bringing the real world into the school for kids young and then as they get older kind of letting them move out into the real world it's a it's a profound statement of being able to walk out of a room and having students and children being able to manage their own learning it's yeah that's that's pretty strong so that that was more of the easier question the harder question is so you're doing it for 50 students 8 to 14 on the spacex campus is does this work? Can this model work for the public school system? I don't think that you can take Ad Astra wholesale, of course, but I do think there are a few a few things that, that will work well in any school um, based on my experience. And, and the first thing is that you've got to give kids choices between seemingly equivalent options. And what I mean by that is you know, rather, I remember like when, as a kid, you're doing persuasive writing. It's like you're kind of getting into sort of argumentation and, and all of that. And really, it's like, should there be school uniforms or no school uniforms? Like that sort of thing. What I'm interested in is giving kids, you know, as a starting place, you know, three, five, you know, even seven seemingly equivalent options that have quantitative and qualitative elements. So I could say something to you like, you know, generally speaking, should teachers, firefighters, soldiers, the mayor, 
um, or, you know, I don't know if it's teachers, teachers be paid more money relative to one another. Like if you could assign one to five dollar signs to, you know, these five public employees, how would you rate how much they should be paid relative, relative to one another? And you give them this purposely ambiguous question and have them reason like sort of like, well, I think in general, the mayor should be paid the most because of their responsibility. And someone might say like, that's ridiculous. Teachers have a much larger impact or could potentially have a larger impact. I think teachers should pay the most. And then some kids says, well, like, how effective is the teacher? Like, is it a great teacher? Or is this like an, an average teacher or like not a very good teacher at all? Someone says, well, like, is the you know, firefighter working in California during the wildfires or someone who works in Alaska? or whatever, right? So you propose a question and then you allow that conversation to build and you allow an expression of differing opinions to build sort of a, a sense of reasoning that can happen among the class. So um, you know, they start really basic like that, but then you can build a simulation where different teams are competing to pick the right fishing routes that catch different types of fish, knowing that there's a quota and if that quota is exceeded, that type of fish is going to be downgraded in terms of its uh, sustainable level. So maybe it starts as least concern, but then you overfish for year one and year two, it becomes, you know, um, threatened. And then in, you overfish again in year three, it becomes, um, you know, I don't know, endangered or something like that. And then ends in extinct in the wild. So m sort of merging the, the capitalistic market driven forces with some of the ethical pieces, I think is something that schools should be doing from a very young age. Um, so, and I think one of the, the best ways to do this is just to justify the time in school to do multidisciplinary work, like give kids problems, let them talk, like make decisions, let them compete if necessary. And, you know, even if it just sort of starts as a quick activity in between, you know, math and social studies, just give kids the opportunity to have their voices heard. And I, I feel like, especially working in low-income schools for so many years, you know, a lot of students, particularly those that are behind in math and literacy, and who are spending their entire time trying to gear up for these tests that are, frankly, above their, their level, and it's not quite clear what exactly they measure, it's really rare that that kid has an opportunity to express their voice. So to the extent that we can do that in schools, I mean, we've partnered with a company called Class Dojo based in San Francisco. They're probably the largest educational platform that exists in the world. They have something like 10 million um, daily users around the world. So some of these Ad Astra uh, questions that I've created, they're called conundrums, will be available starting in October for, for schools around the world. And really just some of these basic questions to get kids thinking and talking and then hoping to start building out questions that are more relevant to them that their teachers design. Thank you, Josh, for spending some time. Wow. Talk about disruption, uh, disruption of the education system, all for uh, hopefully the betterment of all. How about that statement? You walk out of a room and let children manage their own learning. That trust is profound, impressive, and encouraging. Encouraging for what he's built at Ad Astra, and hopefully encouraging if we can ever get to that point in the public school system or even private school system to give more children a voice and the ability to learn. I think what he's doing is, is really neat and something that hopefully will continue to evolve for students everywhere. Really appreciate it, Josh. That's, his, that's great stuff. Thank you guys all for listening. I hope to see you all at Skippers for a beer sometime this fall. Have a great day.